Get unfiltered lessons from our leaders at AHF as we uncover real, raw stories of where we came from and where we are going. Join us for an unscripted look at the connections our senior leadership have to our mission, core values, and hot initiatives. AHF is the world's largest HIV AIDS service organization operating in 45 countries globally, 16 states domestically, including DC and Puerto Rico. Our mission is to provide cutting edge medicine and advocacy, regardless of ability to pay. Hello, and welcome to the After Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Hogan, serving as your liaison to take you through this journey to learn more about AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Before we start the show, please make sure to remember to check out the show notes so you can follow along. Now, let's get started. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the After Hours Podcast. As always, I am your host, Lauren Hogan, and today we have a really special episode. Um, We're going to be spotlighting our Africa Bureau. It's the first time we're going to do a global spotlight, and we've got some amazing guests with us. So I just want to introduce Peter Reese. Um, Dr. Penny's with us, and so is uh, Mama Angelina. So Peter, I'm going to turn it over to you first just to give a quick introduction of uh, who you are and what your role is at AHF. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, I'm Peter Reese. I'm Senior Vice President of AHF. Uh, I supervise a number of divisions and disciplines uh, domestically and and globally. The Asia Bureau reports to me, uh, as well as the Global Quality Team. And I've been at AHF for 27 years. Penny? Hi, I'm Penny Uto. I'm the Bureau Chief for AHF Africa programs. We work in 13 countries uh, in Africa. And I've been with AHF, it will be 18 years this, this 5th of March. So I'm happy to join this conversation today. And Mama Angelina? Thank you. Ambassador Angelina Wapakabulo, but commonly known as Mama in the HF circles. Glad to be with you today. I'm 72 years young, and I have been associated with the HF since 2001 in various capacities. A senior advisor, as chair of AHF Uganda Cares, currently as a board member of AHF and global vice chair. Glad to be with you today. So, so just to point out, Lauren, she's all of our bosses at this point. <laughs> exactly. That's what I got from it too, Peter, for sure. <laughs> so to kind of get the conversation going, um, I want to ask you guys just to take us back in time to when AHF first entered Africa and what it looked like then versus what we look like now in that continent. Well, I guess I, I can start maybe, um, you know, uh, it really goes back to Durban all the way to 2000, um, where um, a number of folks from AHF, including Michael, uh, made a decision to go to the Durban AIDS conference. And it wasn't clear that we, we were going to go. Um, AHF back in those days was a lean organization financially. And, uh, and the, I remember there was a conversation at senior management where Michael wondered aloud how much, we could, how much of a difference we could make. Um, but we decided we should go, and, and we did. And uh, three or four of us went. Uh, I, I decided not to go and did that on purpose I was chief financial officer at the time, and, and money was tight, and I didn't want to be a drag on, on Michael's um, experience, frankly. And, uh, but I, I knew at the time that there was no way that we weren't going to do something there, given how bad it was. And uh, I knew that it was going to change the organization forever, um, and it has. Um, yeah, I mean, we're 35 years old now. Uh, we've done a, a lot of amazing things as an organization, but probably nothing more important than the Africa Project and program. Um, I think um, 
you know, the journey has been now 20 years. Um, we've made an amazing impact. Uh, it's been a moral issue as much as it's been a clinical situation that needed attention. Um, and uh, I mean, I think, you know, we spent money we didn't have uh, to make an impact uh, on the world. And, and we did it for the right reasons. And we were a first mover as a U.S.-based organization to go and, and, and move into this uh, uh, challenge. And, uh, and I think we've done an amazing job. Mom, I want to turn it over to you because, like you said, you've been with AHF since 2001. So what has your experience been just seeing AHF from when we started in Africa to what it looks like now? I can assure you, for me, it's been a journey of determination and passion and commitment for a cause beyond the call of duty. Guess what? I met Michael in 2001, and that was in Uganda when he, with some other doctors whom they had met in South Africa, were hosting an AIDS conference. Peter has just said money was tight. I meet this person with a big smile, with a big heart, with commitment, and one of the challenges is we don't have enough money to facilitate the conference. You know what he does? He calls mom. Hi, hi, mom, how are you? Fine. I need some money. And how do I send the money? And we are all waiting to see whether the money is going to come or not. Michael asked me, I said, there's Western Union. And with Western Union, they'll be able to transfer the money and we'll be able to get it. Fast forward, I think within 24 hours, we did get that money from mama resting. In peace. So that was my first experience. And from then onwards, it was a journey where we had the first clinic in Masaka, a clinic which was actually a ward, a private ward. But given the networking that Michael and the resident doctors in Uganda, Dr. Dixon and Dr. Bernard, had been able to make, and the, the, the LC5 chairman in Masaka at the time, Mr. Sempija, Honorable Sempija, they were able to zero on Masaka, which was the epicenter actually of HIV and AIDS. Again, what Peter said was applicable. Mary Adair came, we went downtown shopping for materials for curtains, looking for pails and... Uh, all the items that would be needed to clean up the place, and wow, we go off to Masaka. Get the word, Mary Adair, with a grandma who had already lost three sons to HIV and AIDS, who had been working there, and a sister who had been working in that clinic, in that ward, called Sister Hope, got down on our knees, scrubbed the floor, made sure that the curtains were up, and guess what? Come February 2001, against all manners of this cannot be done, that you cannot give ARVs to people who don't have watches. You cannot have this done in a place where people don't have 
transport which is reliable. But you know, Michael, he said it will be done. And come February 2002, we celebrated giving ARVs to our first patient, and that has then grown from one client under our care to over 116,600 on ARVs in, in our facilities. Now, if you want to call that a small journey, that would be very much an understatement. And uh, I'll be adding more on more about the journey, but that is from 2002, one to currently over 116,000 and our care. So mama, I just want to emphasize something you said. So over a 20 year span, we went from one client to over 116,000. So to your point, that is definitely no small journey to say the least. So um, thank you for really providing that keen insight. Um, I do want to uh, segue over to Penny and just ask you, because you are the, the bureau chief in Africa. So um, what are some of the differences that you see from, you know, a government standpoint being in Africa and being operational versus some of the things that you may see that we have here in the U.S. when it comes to um, AHF's operations? So, you know, you ask a very important question because going in and getting the program started, started in Africa you know, entailed that AHF thought very carefully about how we got the program started, even when we knew that so many patients were dying. And, you know, when, when Peter was talking about when we started, that was the peak of the epidemic here in Africa. In the early 2000s was really the peak of the epidemic when so many people were dying. There was so much loss of life and there was just a lot of hopelessness around it. And, you know, AHF being the first provider, actually in both Uganda and South Africa, AHF was the first provider of ART in government facilities. And so in relation to how AHF works here with government is our model has always been to partner with government because at the end of the day, you know, the government is responsible for its citizens and we come in and provide the technical assistance, the technical support to show them that, you know, you could do it better. And at the time when AHF was coming into Africa, um, you know, the, most governments did not have the money for the drugs. They did not have a solution. They did not know where to buy the drugs. Drugs, the drugs were not available. They were mostly in the Western world. They were not here. And so partnering with government, signed that, which included signing MOUs uh, with the government, these are memorandums of understanding. So basically having a framework within which we worked and opening up their facilities, government facilities to offer this, you know, this much needed care was a very important model because one, it was cost efficient. Secondly, the patient were already there. We didn't need to go to the community to mobilize the patients. The patients were already coming to the government facilities anyway. And so we needed to utilize what was already available in terms of the resource um, and build on top of that um, to get the services to the, to the people. As, as Peter said, you know, AHF's uh, financial envelope was small at that time. And so being very tactful about where to put the money was very critical. And um, it's made a big difference in how fast we're able to roll out the programs across the region. Um, because I think the, the only exception was in South Africa, where we started more or less like a standalone facility, um, you know, in the townships. And, you know, if you know the history of South Africa, is that there was a lot of AIDS denialism from the government at that point in time. And so AHF starting up a clinic within a township community that was really high, highly burdened with HIV was on the, more on the advocacy to show that it can be done. Mama talked about, you know, entrusting patients to take their drugs on time, uh, you know, even when, you know, a lot of the conversation in the, in the West was they cannot take 
your drugs on time. That was to show that it can be done and it can be done well. And you don't need to do, you know, you don't need too much to get it done. And that was, has been very instrumental in, in not only getting ourselves from patient zero um, to over 120,000 here in Uganda, but across the, uh, the Africa region, we are supporting over 740,000 patients within the 20-year span that we've been here. So that has been critical. The second aspect, um, which has gained a lot of trust for us, not just with government, but with the communities as well, is that we hire local nationals. You know, Peter and a number of other folks, and your mama mentioned, Mary Adair, they were very instrumental in getting the program started, and mainly because they had the experience with, you know, offering ART, and they needed to lend that experience to us. But with lots of training and with just support and ensuring that they're hiring the local people to run their own programs has been very critical for our success. So, um, and then also, has also brought a lot of the trust from, from the government. So, um, you know, that model itself has been very critical for our success within the Bureau. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would add, you know, I mean, the similarities of the project in the Africa versus the United States is healthcare. I mean, it's a delivery system. Um, the biggest difference is that in the United States, we own and operate everything. We employ everybody. We either rent or, or purchase or build the facilities. Um, and we're responsible for everything. Um, in Africa and in other parts of the world, it's mostly a model where we have a partnership with government and there are various responsibilities and financial supports that we provide, uh, responsibilities that we take up and, and financial uh, um, support that we provide to get the site to be in the best position it can to deliver the care. Um, and I think we've done that very, very well over the years. Uh, and um, I think back to the journey, um, you know, the, the we've, as Penny pointed out, we've been very clear that we are going to partner with government and we're going to hire only indigenous people to run the programs. I mean, that was part of the model as well. When many organizations at the beginning uh, of AIDS being uh, uh, dealt with and, and, and supported in Africa, where a, a lot of U.S.-based and European-based agencies were using uh, expats to run programs, AHF was hiring indigenous people, training them, and, and putting them in position to deliver care and learn themselves. And so I think that was a, a, a major part of our model. Okay, I was just going to add one aspect that also proved very critical for us in partnering with government. When AHF came, they had the doctor friends, but we had no office. And one of the first offices was actually at Mulago Referral Hospital. It was a two-in-one facility, an office, a store, and everything. But the fact that it was based in the National Referral Hospital spoke volumes of the kind of relationship that was being built between AHF and Uganda Cares. So that, I think, was a very important part in the relationship. So this is a perfect segue because, uh, Peter, you've already mentioned this and Penny, you just did as well. What would you guys say would be three key things or key tips uh, for building and sustaining partnerships with governments and communities when expanding into a new territory? You've each kind of touched on it a little bit, but what would be the three top priorities that you guys would say would lend to that? So I'll, I'll start with this. Um, you know, the key one is to ensure you have an agreement with the government. Don't just go into a place and you don't have an agreement because 
Because sometimes, you know, if government switches and or there's the change in government, you want to ensure that they've already, you know, we've locked them down to some specific agreements. So it's always critical that we have, we sign these memorandums of agreements in place. The second one is you have to ensure that they're involved. Um, so, so you invite them for our events because you want them to see what you're doing. You also engage them in supervision, in training. And and in that way, you you, you know, you benefit from them seeing what, what you're doing, but also some of the trainings are actually available and provided by the government. So our own staff, you know, benefit from those trainings and we don't have to pay pay for them. And thirdly, you have to ensure that AHF is represented at different levels, whether it's at the regional level, it may be a district or, or county or state level. You ensure AHF is, is represented in the conversations that are going on around HIV and AIDS. There are always, you know, lower level AIDS committees that, you know, take care of the, the discussions around HIV and AIDS. And then at national level, it's to ensure that AHF is represented within the different technical working groups because there will always be a group for that just you know, looks at the policies regarding HIV and AIDS on ART or on prevention. So we ensure that we are part of the conversation and we are part of the policies that are being made at that level. Thirdly, don't get involved in the, in the politics. <laughs> you know, we've always been strategic by ensuring that, you know, we don't get locked up in the politics. Politics in Africa can be very muddy. So you don't want to get locked up in that because it, it will work. It would work to our disadvantage. At the community level, you know, it's been important for us to ensure that the community depends on us. And that means we've, we've been able to get the community trust. How, how do you get the community trust? Is you do a good job. We've definitely done a good job wherever we are. And we know very well our patients, patients vote their feet that's what you know most people say if they like the service they will come to you if they don't like they will walk away and you know we've not had patients walking away anywhere we've been and also involving the community in the process so you know as you're establishing yourself in the community you know ensuring that they, they own the program because they will be the one to market the facility for you or the services that you offer by word of mouth patients will come to you um and then then very critical is you know we work in very diverse cultures across the bureau so it's good to have a good understanding of the community and respect the culture so everywhere we've gone we ensure that we embrace our core value of respecting diversity because that has been you know this is essential for us to and irrespective of what the culture is whether it's polygamous whether it whether it doesn't matter what it is just respect what the culture is but work to ensure that we are able to deliver the services within whatever the cultural context is yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things that we did was we made sure we were invited. Um, you know, we, we made sure that the government wanted us there uh, and supported us being there. And the other thing, culturally, we didn't come in and, and act like we knew everything. We, we came in and said, look, we're here to help. We're here to do what we can. We think we have something to offer. We have some resources. We have expertise and a partnership where, you know, we sort of work through what the challenges are and, and, and how we can best work together. I mean, our, our, one of the hallmarks of our programs, both in the United States and around the world, including Africa, is partnership with governments that are strong. And, uh, and that doesn't mean that everything has been perfect. And, and Penny, I want to underscore what she said about the politics. We have consciously stayed out of the politics of every country in the world. I mean, Uganda had a very anti-gay situation that ca caused a lot of strife and worry um, for a variety of reasons. And we, you know, we were sympathetic uh, to, to, to the, the need for, for gay rights activists to make their case. But we were also decided we had to stay out of it. We had to we had to be careful uh, to not look at to be meddling in the politics of any any country. 
I think that's really important, though, that you guys said that respecting the culture is such a key priority, because I think sometimes, you know, as an organization or entity that we are, there's some misconceptions about, you know, what you may do abroad. So I love that you guys highlighted saying that we made sure that we respected the culture so that way we can get to the work at the end of the day. Um, So, Mama, I want to bring you back into the conversation really quickly and just ask you as well, you know, You've been a part of this journey for, you know, over 20 years. So in your experience, what have you seen as, you know, the day-to-day challenges that we uh, have been facing in Africa and and how have we been addressing them? The challenges in all activities, in programs are always there. But I think what has stood out for AHF is being able to understand what, what the challenges are whether it's a challenge that you can deal with alone or as a consortium of other organizations as well, and then being mindful of what the consequences could be so that at the end of the day, you do not jeopardize your own programs in the way that you address issues. Uh, When it comes to challenges, I think... A lot of time was put into understanding what the challenges were, what the issues were in the family. So as people came to embrace that there was hope that AHF was not, not AHF, that AIDS was not a death sentence, that something could be done. I think increasingly so the way AHF Uganda Cares, in our case, was able to handle it, definitely made a difference in addressing whichever challenges would come across. And that has continued all along. I just want to add on to that, um, you know, to, to bring other perspectives to, to some of the challenges we talk about here and we face on a daily basis. We work in some really difficult or insecure and very remote locations. And... Um, you find, for instance, just recently, you know, we've been facing, you know, we had a cyclone, Anna, in, um, in Malawi that cut off five of our facilities. Both patients and staff were affected, and we still had to get services out there. You know, patients ran to camps, and we had to get still ensure that their drugs were going to stay, were going to be with them, and, you know, also provide them with other, you know, just you know, materials that they'll need, household materials that they'll need. And in some of the locations, like Benue State in, um, in Nigeria, yeah, you find that there are tribal clashes in the place that we work. And staff have talked about situations where they are going to a particular health facility and there's been a tribal clash and they're passing by dead bodies, but they know that they still have to reach patients who may be you know, deeper in, uh, in the community. Uh, we have a unique clinic here in Uganda. It's called the Market Clinic. I think any, anyone who comes to Uganda, we usually like them to have a taste of the Market Clinic. It's a clinic that you know is stationed right in the heart of this really large market that has over 100,000, you know, vendors, that clinic is quite noisy, uh, very noisy. But that clinic started from scratch, uh, you know, in collaboration with one of the community groups and were able to, you know, to, now the clinic takes care of ever, over 8,000 patients. Um, but it's not an easy location within which to work. The other aspects are that, you know, as Peter mentioned earlier, we, we, we work in very restrictive environments, you know, where the government policies uh, or the legal framework Works are very restrictive, you know, for the NGO work. You find that the NGO space has been restricted for valid and sometimes, you know, questionable, re- you know, reasons. Governments want to have control of what, a, you know, NGOs are doing. And so 
that sometimes can hinder the, you know, how fast you can get a program running or what you can actually do. So those are things we have to work on, you know, work with on a daily basis. The other aspects are that, you know, we serve very poor communities generally where we work. And um, because we do a good job on providing their healthcare needs, the community expects us to go over and beyond just, and, and you know, you, you can't provide everything that they need sometimes. And so, you know, where we can, we've been able to do some things. For instance, you know, we just, set up a borehole to provide clean, uh, fresh water for this community in, in Nigeria. And it did not only serve the small community, but it was able to reach 6,000 households. So, uh, you know, we are able to do some things, you know, over and beyond just providing healthcare where, where we are. And lastly, this is an interesting challenge. You know, we do such a good job in, in, in multiple lo locations that we end up, um, you know, receiving multiple requests from different individuals. Just government folks, members of parliament, communities, oh, please come and start a clinic here. And we can't be, you know, all over the place. So it's, it mm -hmm. becomes a challenge for, for us as well to, to go and reach so many communities. The need is there, but we can't be, you know, all over, all over. So some of those are the other challenges that we have to work with on a, on a daily basis. So in a more inspirational note, I want to ask to the group, you know, can any of you guys recall a significant moment that really just highlighted the depth of AHF's impact on the communities that we serve? And um, in what ways did this, you know, growth or improvement just really overall help the Bureau? Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take that up. Uh, Dr. Penny has touched on it. I happen to be associated with one of the community groups that specifically works in market communities. Market communities are not your ordinary communities. The first impression you get is chaos, lots of people, noise, and you don't, you don't think there's anything organized in that place. There are also characteristics of market community members which make it very difficult for them to uptake health facilities. For example, a market vendor will not leave their place of work and go two or three kilometers away to get medical support. No, they will not, because they feel if they do that, then they'll be missing out on their clients. Now, why have I brought this up? For me, one of the significant moments was when AHF Uganda Cares partnered with this community organization, Development Initiatives International, played a key role in establishing an HIV service model that enabled sensitization, prevention, counseling, testing, and very critical, providing ARVs all in the marketplace. It had never been done, but AHF took the lead and they became part of that model. What was very interesting is given the AHF family spirit, we had initially Henry Chang and Mary Adair and Michael had also been there. Then time came when the place was set up. I don't know if some of you still remember, rest in peace, Dr. Farthing. Dr. Charles Farthing was one of those doctors who would be coming 
he was the chief of medical, I think at the time, mm -hmm. would come from the airport, not go straight to his hotel, but would go straight to the market clinic. And whether it's language barrier or what, I think he was so well trained and he would stay there until late, make sure all the clients had been seen because that was his passion to ensure that the, 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 the clients, even in that setting, were getting the best facility. So for me, that was a moment which I think defined that AHF Uganda Cares could break the barriers, go to areas which people thought could not be reached, take the ARVs where the people are, and that model has been replicated in other places in, in, in Kampala. But also we had delegations from Sudan, we had delegations from Kenya, all coming to see what AHF was able to provide in the marketplaces and reaching out to the clients and delivering ARVs in the marketplace. For me, that was the defining moment. I mean, what stands out for me was, um, you know, in 2016, we had the International AIDS Conference in Durban, and it was more or less coming full circle for AHF because, you know, the first conference at the height of the AIDS pandemic was held there, and then, you know, many, many more years down the, the line, the AIDS conference was going back there. And so, you know, Michael gave us a task, you know, especially with the Global Advocacy Department and the Terrorist Department, and said, you know, we he wanted us to mobilize 10,000 patients for this match. Now, just think about mobilizing 10,000 patients. That was quite a big number. So amidst, you know, the different strategies we had, we knew that we could depend on our patients. You know, our patients always love to come and always, and that has been the same thing in every country. We mobilize our patients, they're always there to support us. But 10,000 was a big number. But, you know, with the hard work of the team, we managed to go over and beyond that 10,000 patient number. We mobilized close to 14,000 people who came for the march. And just seeing this large sea of, of, of patients and people marching, and they wore these lime green t-shirts. It was just in your face. We had this really long march. We, you know, we took, we, we, we walked, I think it was about three, kilo, three kilometer walk. It was really significant. Um, but just seeing that and, you know, and, and just knowing that it can get done, you give it a task and, you know, you mobilize each and everyone, every staff member, and you can really get it done, was just a moment that cemented, you know, our can-do attitude, you know, because you just showed, you know, you can get it done. It doesn't matter what the task is, you can get it done. And I think it's part of the reason why, you know, we've gone to all these places, um, you know, when we even, we didn't know sometimes what we're going to expect. I've taken Peter to some of the places, you know, in Nigeria, very hot, 42 degrees. <laughs> I don't know what that is in you know, Fahrenheit. You know, in the heat, we reached a moment when Peter stopped sweating. He would just sweat. <laughs> you know, he'd pour from head to toe. You feel you're sweating. Yeah. <laughs> we reached a moment yeah. when he stopped sweating. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we went to see these really desperate facilities, knowing that we needed to provide a service. Yeah, it was it was a surprise to me that I stopped sweating. There, there was a, there's been a num there have been so many moments that that to to to, to count. But um, you know when we opened the second iterations of Ithambalabantu in South Africa and the new building in Masaka, those were 
defining moments. You know, they, they were much bigger facilities. They were, they, they sent a signal to the community that not only were we were sticking around, but we're going to be bigger and better than we've ever been. Um, some smaller moments, you know, we, we have uh, Africa Bureau meetings and those are so impressive because every year they get bigger and it, you can really have a sense of the network of colleagues that we've helped create that are leading across the continent, you know, a continent that was, that was so challenged and, and so much was so dire. Um, and, and there's still a lot of challenges, but, but, but the leadership that we've been able to build um, is inspiring. Um, and I, I've had personal moments, you know, I, I, I've had, I had a moment that I talked about in the 30th anniversary film where, you know, I'm leaving at the airport and this guy comes up and, you know, leans in the car and says, thank you for saving my brother. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, and, and the same thing, Penny, you were talking about um, the Durban 2016 uh, extravaganza that we were part of. But, you know, Bill Arroyo, our, our current board chair, had the same experience with a cab driver telling him, you know, my cousin was saved by you. Thank you so much. So, um, I mean, it, it, it's been a profound uh, journey, but but a, a successful one and 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 stirring. And, um, you know, it's been it's been the privilege of my life to do this work. And, uh, and and I have to say, I have to give a shout out to my two colleagues. They're two of my favorite people in the whole world that are on this call. They're they're colleagues and they're friends and they're incredibly impactful. And uh, I want to make sure we don't end this broadcast before I get a chance to say that. I, I was I was just going to say, Peter. You've reminded me of the opening of the massacre clinic. You remember we had a little hitch and uh, that hitch. Yes, just a little bit. It was a hitch and uh, trust our CEO, our president and uh, our core value that uh, one of them is that it's patient centered. So we won't go into the details of the hitch, but what solved it was Right, Our CEO right. said, okay, we are going to go if all the clients, the market vendors will come with me. And hooray, you should have seen the procession of the clients, the patients with Michael with us. It just reminded me of that incident. I remember, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have got plenty of stories that you could tell. <laughs> if only we had some time, more time to do it. Um, but we are, like I said, almost at time. So I have one final question for you guys. And, um, you know, what can we expect, you know, upcoming from the Africa Bureau? Like you guys have talked about, there's a need and you guys can't be in 50 million places at once. But, you know, what's next? What can we look forward to? Yeah, um, I like growth. Um, Mama always likes to say, you know, you need to consolidate, but I say, yes, we shall consolidate where we are, but I still like growth. There's just something exciting about going to a new territory, a new location, and starting up new clinics. Because the joy in that is you always find people who are in so much need. Even now when Aravis have been, you know, in the continent for a long time, for over 20 years, there's still a big need in a large number of communities. So the joy of going to a new community and just showing them what the AHF model can do is, is very exciting. So we we are planning to grow to Tanzania and Cameroon as new uh, new program startups in the next uh, two years. Um, and then most of the other things are really internal, you know, honing in our models of care, doing a better job in retaining our patients, in linking more of our patients to, to care, and, um, you know, also building the internal capacity of our managers because the Africa Bureau has close to 2,000 staff, AHF employees. That's really close to the number of employees 
employees in the U.S. So the HF, the direct HF employees are close to 2,000. So building their capacity, you know, especially to be better leaders and better managers is one of the areas that, you know, we are focusing on going into the future. Yeah, I would just say there, there are more new infections than there are deaths. So every year that goes by, there are more people living with HIV than the year before. And that means we're not getting control of the epidemic in the way that we had hoped. And so I think, you know, treatment um, as prevention is, is, is the number one strategic direction and, 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 and getting more people found and getting them on treatment. Uh, I mean, we're dealing with scale here. I mean, we need more facilities and, and the facilities are overwhelmed oftentimes with, with too many patients. So I think there's more of that, but I think Penny's point is the well-taken one. It's growth and, and continued uh, investment on our part uh, to keep making a difference like we have been for 20 years. And certainly making use of the experience that we have had over the years to get better and better. And I think we can do that. Well, I will just have to say thank you guys so much. Um, this has been a very inspirational episode to say the least. And just to hear um, of all of the progress and the amazing work that we've done in our bureau in Africa, um, you know, no amount of accolades, I don't think is enough at this point in time for the work that's being done. So thank you guys so much. Um, this was a great episode and, um, we look forward to seeing you guys on another episode of the after hours podcast. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you, Say mama. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Penny. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the show, please subscribe, share it with your friends, like, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Follow us on Instagram at After Hours and see you next time. <laughs>